Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Bring you conversations in with experts in the field of sports. Today's is a special guest of mine, somebody who is Giving me some some good feedback as I move along in the broadcasting journalist world. He also covered me as a player during my time as a Portland Trailblazer. I've always found him to be fair, yet also search for the truth. From the Oregonian and also a radio host in Portland, John Canzano. John? How goes life in Portland for yourself and your family these days? Well, you know, it's weird times, right, with, uh, you know, the skies full of smoke and a lot of uh, brave first responders on the front lines fighting fires, and I always feel silly, uh, you know, talking about sports. But I want to, you know, give those guys a shout out first. And by the way, with your podcast, you're a way better media member than I am a basketball player. So you're way ahead, man. You are. You're doing a great job. Well, I appreciate that. There's a learning curve to any career, um, especially when it. You know, for a, for a former player like myself, it's your second act where you're really trying to figure out what fits your eye, what you want to do, and how to get good at it. And I can imagine it, it's a very similar learning curve to someone like yourself who, um, in looking a little bit more at your bio, um, you played college baseball and then you, got a, you had a degree in English and you got right into the world of, of journalism. Is that something that caught your eye as a young kid that said, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make the majors, uh, but I want to be around sports. Yeah. How did your start come about? Well, it's really interesting because I think your kids, you know, may may be a better, you know, parallel for me. Is like my dad played professional baseball, and he was in AAA with the Mets organization and played with the, you know, in 1969 when the Mets won the World Series, he was in AAA. And so, you know, I got an idea as a young kid what a professional baseball player looked like and a guy who played at a high level in AAA and I remember going out at like 13, 14 years old and taking ground balls, and my dad was so smooth. I mean, it was like the ball. You know, you see a middle infielder who handles the ball. It doesn't even look like it touches their glove. He had those kinds of hands, and and he could run. And I, I was not faster than him until I was a senior in high school. And it was amazing to me because I had this perspective maybe that others didn't in that this is what a professional athlete is. And 
and I knew I wasn't going to play. I knew I was. If he didn't make the big leagues, I was. You know, I I knew I I knew I wasn't a major <laughs> league player. And so, what came naturally to me, and what he really fostered outside of sports, was uh, he used to take me to the bookstore, and we used to read Jack London, and we used to read sports stories, and he'd bring the sports page home, and it was real connection. Writing came very naturally to me, and I had an interest in sports, and I was I just really struggled. You know, I think with a lot, like a lot of people do, trying to figure out in college, like, all right, I'm playing baseball. Um, I, I love to write. How do I turn that into a career? And like you, it's like I never imagined I'd be hosting a radio show. I never imagined I'd be on TV. I just thought of myself as a sports writer, and I have had to learn things on the fly and evolve and be adaptive. And I think it's just, you know, it's the people that I see in media who are thriving are people who have, have been able to adapt. So, you know, that's kind of my progression I have kids all the time will come up to me and say, hey, how do I get your job? Like, I'd re- love to host a radio show. Or I'd love to be on KGW or love to write for the Oregonian. And and I, I tell them, like, I, I don't know that path because it doesn't exist anymore. I, I just started off as a writer and then began to do some radio. And then it was right around 2007, I think, when the Blazers got the number one pick, uh, one of the local hip-hop stations flipped to sports format because Greg Oden was coming to town. The Blazers were going to win it all. And so... It was like in that era that they suddenly said, okay, you're going to host a three-hour show now. And I had to figure out how to do it. And frankly, the show probably sucked at the beginning, but I, I just worked at it because I didn't want to embarrass myself. I love those two descriptive words that you use in improving it at your craft. And that was evolve and adapt. Um, I completely agree with that. And, you know, the, the struggle you just mentioned about hosting your own first three-hour radio show – uh, my first experience hosting a radio show was down in the Portland area, and you probably know uh, Chad doing really well. Yep. And I was a guest on his radio show occasionally, and he knew that I was kind of going back and forth. Do I want to get into coaching? Do I want to get into media with the, 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 the broadcasting side of things? And he said, you know what? Next week you're going to host my show all by yourself. And I said, okay, no worries. It was a four-hour show, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., and he literally gave me no script. He just wanted to put me out there, put my feet to the fire. And that day I learned just how difficult it was on the media side as far as your preparation, as far as the depth of knowledge that you have to have, the, the network that you have to have to be able to get good content and get good guests on radio shows. And when I look at some of the work that you have, have done over the years, and, and I got to know you during my stint uh, playing with the Blazers, your network and your investigative willingness to kind of figure things out has been really impressive. Where did that leave no stone unturned kind of philosophy come for you? It's really interesting because, you know, first of all, you know, I had the background in sports with a dad who had played. And so I kind of heard the stories and I, and I heard his perspective on his dealings with media members as a player. And you've had those as well. But what what you're looking for is to be treated fairly, right? You said that right off the top. You want to be treated, you know, you, you know you're not always going to have a great game. You know you're not always going to get it right. But you want somebody who's going to walk in the room with a fair and objective point of view. And I've always tried to have those conversations with people. But I also feel like most of the readers, listeners, viewers know who won the game. They've seen the box score. They're smart. They know the analytics now. They know them better than the media members. And so... When, when I come into the room, I'm always looking for something that nobody's going to see or a perspective or maybe talking to somebody that nobody's talking to about what's going on. I really leaned into the players. 
uh, at different times and said, hey, what, what would you write today? Or what do you see going on with this team if a team is struggling? And sometimes the players will give you the answer. And they know better than anybody, right? You're living it. You, you know the team dynamic. And so I've always felt like I slept better when I wrote everything that I knew was going on while being fair to people. I had a, the experience early in my career. I went and covered IU basketball in Indiana. Uh, Bobby Knight was still the coach. Um, I covered, um, you know, a team that went to the NCAA tournament. It was sort of a, a few years before he uh, and Indiana parted ways, but I got a chance to cover him, and you really had to make a decision when you walked into that media room. Am I going to cover the team in a fair and objective way, or am I going to have a good relationship with Coach Knight? Because he had a certain... Uh, way of alienating you if you didn't cover the team the way he wanted you to cover the team. He would give access to Bob Hamill, who was the Bloomington uh, beat reporter, because Hamill was never going to write anything negative about the team. And so I remember early on going, look, I'm not going to be one of these guys who's been in here 25 or 30 years, who's sitting in the desk, you know, waiting for Coach Knight to tell them what to write. I'm going to write what's really going on with the program. And and I did that, and then I, right after that, I, had, I got whiplash because I got a chance to cover Jerry Tarkanian's teams at Fresno State. And it was like, when I walked into that first practice, uh, Coach Tarkanian pulled me aside, and he said, can I talk to you? Stop the drill. He said, can I talk to you? He says, I understand you covered Bobby Knight before coming here. And I said, yeah. And he says, well, what's, what's Coach Knight's practices like? And I said, I looked around the gym. He was scrimmaging and players were walking off the court. I said, nothing like this, like a complete like 180. But I realized in covering those two guys, you, there's more than one way to do it. There's more than one way to have success. There's room in sports for people to do it a variety of ways. And my job is really to kind of bring the reader or the listener along with me and show them, all right, here's the process. Here's what's really going on with the team. Because most people know at the end, you know, a team, they look at the box score, they look at the plus minus, they look at, you know, uh, win differential in baseball, and they, they, the, the fans are smart, readers are smart. So my job is to kind of just bring them along with me and show, show them something they don't have access to. That's so fascinating, um, the way you describe kind of a, a relationship with Bobby Knight, Jerry Tarkanian, how Tarkanian wanted to, to know a little bit about Bobby Knight and how things were run at Indiana. So you've gone from when Bobby Knight kind of ran things in a, in essence as a dictator uh, in Bloomington to now the media landscape has completely changed. You've got journalists um, that write for newspapers. You've got online uh, sites. You've got bloggers. You've got YouTube. You've got all these different platforms. How has the relationship between a media member and coaches or players changed in your opinion since nowadays players have a really strong platform to get their message out as well yeah it's 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 tricky now because you've got players who have their own social media reach if they really want to reach people directly they can immediately you've got also i think the bigger complicating factor are the organizations or the colleges who are trying to constantly control access and you, you really have to be careful as a reader or a listener what you trust because you're getting state-sponsored media. You're getting, you know, the Trailblazers, for example, have NBC Sports Northwest, and they're good people who work there, but you're getting Blazers propaganda. You're getting spoon-fed, you know, uh, you know we're going to give you great access, but you're never going to write anything that, that's going to embarrass us type content. And so I've paid a price, I think, over the, over the years, as have other journalists who want to cover things accurately in that... The Blazers for a number of years would not 
help me get a player on my radio show. I had to go on my own. They were forbid by Paul Allen to uh, to allow me to have a player. Bill Shonley uh, defied them and came on the show because what are they going to do with Bill Shonley? He's a legendary broadcaster. They're not going to tell him. But I had C.J. McCollum and Wesley Matthews and yourself and uh, LaMarcus Aldridge and others on the show, and it was just they left it to me. And I kind of said, look, I'm, you know, I'm going to cover this team. Uh, I'm going to give people, I think the readers are smart enough to know when they're getting that spoon-fed you know, news coverage. So I'm going to give them, you know, what's really going on. But in exchange, I'm not going to get the invite, right? I'm not going to get the invite when Paul Allen wants to do a one-on-one interview. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that guy because I'm not going to ask the same questions. So I think that has really complicated things. Access is so vital right now. And what I try to do to mitigate that is like, you know, I'll use Mario Cristobal and Jonathan Smith as an example, the coaches at Oregon, Oregon State. I, I talked to both of those coaches right out of the gates. And I said, I'm, uh, you're not always going to be happy with what I think. But if you're upset about something, call me. Let's yell at each other. Let's hash it out. Because I think the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you get that, you breed that mistrust. They think you're out to get them. They think you're not being fair. And then in the end, you know, you have a problem. And I've had that several times. Like Mario Cristobal called me the other night and he said, hey, something that you quoted me on, I want to clarify. And I love being able to have that relationship where he can say, look, I trust you, but I'm getting some blowback here for something I said, but here's what I really meant. And so it allows him the the ability to kind of, uh, you know, feel like he's being treated fairly and it allows me to have, be able to write what I see and what I think without fear that, you know, they're going to try to lock me out with access. I've, I've learned that to be so true in, in my growing broadcasting career is coaches aren't stupid when they go back and watch the game film or they're not stupid when they read the article. Um, you know, the, the, the score is one thing, the article or the quote was one thing, um, but they want to be covered correctly. And that goes for myself and my role. If, if, if there was a bad play that was made, I can't call it a good play. If you see something that is wrong in your eyes, um, you have to write it in a certain way. Besides the example with uh, Oregon and Oregon State football coaches, is there anybody in the maybe the Portland Trailblazer organization that has been the easiest to work with or the conduit to make things easier? Because, you know, having grown up in the area, I know what the Blazers mean to that community. And there was a rough stretch uh, in the early 2000s. And now they've got a team of, of great guys. Damian Lillard is, is one of the best guys that I've ever come across at, at that level. Um, he's a terrific player. He's a great person, and he tries to really impact the community positively. Has there been one person that's really kind of been helpful in, in kind of bridging that gap between media and the Blazer organization? I'll go back a few years. The first person that popped into my mind was Damon Stoudemire, who – you know, understood what the organization meant to Portland, played, played for his, you know, he was the hometown kid. And, you know, he was a guy, you know, he was notoriously slow dressing. And I think on purpose so that he didn't have to do a lot of the media interviews. He'd be pulling his sock on then pulling the other sock on and everybody's waiting. And pretty soon you're the only one standing there waiting to talk with him. But it was always worthwhile because he was always honest he understood your role. He respected kind of the role. He respected that you could reach, you know, you know, I've, if I've got 60,000 people listening to the radio show, he understands he's not just talking to me. He's talking to 60,000 people. So it's, it's, you know, he was great in understanding that. Lillard is interesting because when he first got to Portland, you know, he had that chip on his shoulder. He, that, that was his brand, Weber State, 
not the number one pick, not a highly recruited player out of high school. And that that was his brand. Like he came in and, you know, it was all about disrespect. And I out of the gates, you know, was critical of him, especially on the defensive end of the court, saying he's got to get better. He's got to commit to getting better. He's got to. And he didn't like that. And it was really interesting last season because he and I have had some back and forths where, you know, he was like, you know, I, I you know, I, I think you're picking on me. I think you're not being fair. Last season, while they were playing the uh, two seasons ago, when they were playing Oklahoma City in the playoffs, the game that, you know, he the series that he won with the 37 foot shot, um, I came up to him before that game and I was walking by him and he was sitting on the bench and he was lacing up his sneakers and I, and he, he had just been playing his butt off. Right. He was he was, you know, carrying the team. He was giving Portland everything that they needed in that series. And I walked by him and I said, hey, you're playing your butt off. And he said, thanks. And and uh, he said, you haven't always been fair with me. And I said, I'm glad that you can tell me that. I said, because let's sit down and talk about it. Because I said, I, I want you to feel like you've been treated fairly. And he saw that's all I ever want. That's what I want. I just want to be treated fairly. And I said, I, I said, we got the same objective. So I love that he, it, you know, and then he goes out and hits that shot. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, I'm glad we had the conversation before that. So he knew that I wasn't just trying to come to him afterwards. But I think that really cleared the air because I have had those conversations. I even had one with Rashid Wallace back in the day, who I found to be engaging and interesting, even though he had this terrible reputation, you know, with the media. And Zach Randolph, I think he understood it. And I think over the years that most of the Blazers recognize that this is a different community, that they're in a little bit of a fishbowl. I think you get it more than most, given your, you know, connection to the fan base in the region. But I think most of the players do get it, it, it but maybe not a right away if they're from outside of the area. Yeah, it's it's a special um, area that supports the Blazers through and through. I'm glad to see them back uh, on such a positive path. I love what Damien's doing, um, you know, as a as a player and and you know being willing to speak his mind about what's important, whether you agree with it or not. I love seeing guys that are being willing to to, to share their opinion and their voice at that level. When I go back and I look at kind of your um, career path, number of different newspapers. Now you've been in Portland for a long time. You've got a baseball background that you shared a little bit with us about uh, your father kind of being all the way up to the AAA level. You have something unique in the fact that you have a Hall of Fame baseball vote as well as a Heisman vote. How proud are you in the fact that you're so well esteemed that you have those opportunities? Because I can only imagine it takes a lot of work to get a the respect in those sports to have that opportunity. It's interesting. I appreciate that. But, it, you know, for me, I grew up a baseball guy. And so being able to vote for the Baseball Hall of Fame, I take it incredibly seriously. I know some people have made a mockery of their votes over the years. And I have shifted my sentiment. I, I used to not vote for the steroid-era guys out of principle and then – realized I was getting it all wrong and I and I started putting you know I voted for Barry Bonds in the last ballot and uh, voted for Roger Clemens and because I, I felt like baseball kind of left it to us as the voters to try to decide who gets into the Hall of Fame they let the guys play they let them play and it's not my job to clean up baseball it was my job to vote on you know who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame and you know when you've got more home runs than anybody I think you belong in the Hall of Fame or in Pete Rose's case he belongs in the Hall of Fame he's got more hits than anybody how do you keep him out of the Hall of Fame um, but I also think like you know with the Heisman vote I feel like our region is terribly underrepresented um, I always 
try to be objective, but I know that the honks down in the south and the eastern part of the United States are all voting for their players. And so I couldn't help over the years to vote for, you know, Washington State. I put Gardner Minshew third on my ballot a few years ago, and uh, I put um, a wide receiver out of USC on my ballot. And I put, uh, you know, obviously Marcus Mariota was on top of my ballot, and I was re- I put Panay Sewell third on my ballot and the last voted Oregon offensive lineman and people in other parts of the country go, oh, you're just being provincial. And I'm like, well, look at the history of this vote. It's you got to vote for what you see. And I feel like I, you know, I got I need to represent the Pacific Northwest a little bit. That's an interesting point, you know, because I, I without following college football too closely, I can only imagine that you're right. And the majority of the voters are from, you know, SEC, Big 12 country, or maybe Big 10, um, or even on the East Coast. And they're they're not watching a lot of West Coast football, especially late at Saturday nights. And, and a lot of that has to do, unfortunately, with a lot of the TV contracts that are done uh, by the leagues to not allow people to watch unless they want to stay up till one, two in the morning. The PAC 12 is one of those leagues and you've been uh, critical of the PAC 12 in the past in regards to, um, you know, structure as far as the network. Um, but when I take a step back and I read those articles, you're not necessarily critical. You're just presenting information. Um, when you look at, being from the Northwest and you want, I can only imagine you want to protect the PAC 12 brand uh, because it is the biggest and best league on the West coast. Um, Where does, where does that kind of, I don't want to call it fuel, but where does that interest come in in sharing that story? Yeah. And and look, and it's, I'm free as a columnist at the Oregonian and radio show host to have my opinion. Right. But you want to be able to back it up with, facts. And the fact is that the Pac-12 network is only available in about 18 million homes. And you've got the SEC and the Big Ten that are showing up in 50 or 60 million homes, and they're showing up at better times of the day. So 18 million homes is about the same as ESPN Deportes. You know, it's that's that's the footprint of the Pac-12 conference. And those games are, we all know, it kicked off too late for anybody on the East Coast who's reasonable to stay up and, and watch it. So I want the Pac-12 to be good. And the bigger thing I saw a few years ago, Dan, was, you know, I was looking at the college football playoff and I was going, why aren't the Pac-12 teams present? Why can't they break into this? There have only been two uh, Pac-12 teams, Oregon and Washington, that have made it. And only Oregon has won a college football playoff game from the Pac-12. That's in seven seasons. They have one win in the playoff and they only have two appearances uh, out of the 28 teams that have made it. So I'm looking at that and I'm going, well, why is that happening? So I started diving deeper on it, and really what the, the biggest fundamental reason that the Pac-12 has been unable to matter there is that they are underfunded. Their television contract pays them a fraction of what the Big Ten and the SEC are getting. They are, their expenses are too high. The conference headquarters are in San Francisco, the most expensive real estate footprint outside of Manhattan uh, in the country. Um, and it's just not run well. And so I start talking to coaches, and I say, look, um, Vanderbilt – by virtue of being in the SEC, is getting $10 million a year more than Oregon State is getting. It, it, it takes almost no brains to understand that over six or seven or eight years, we're now talking $60, $70, 80000000 million for an athletic department. That is a huge disparity. And so when you look at what Alabama is raising, it makes sense to me that the outliers in the Pac-12, Oregon because they've got Phil and Penny Knight, Washington, because they have an incredible fan base and got Chris Peterson, 
and maybe USC, if they could get their act together, those are your only shots to participate in this thing. And, and mostly because the finances, the revenue doesn't matter as much to Oregon and Washington and USC because they can privately raise that money, make up the gap, make up that 10 or $20 million gap. And it's why this next television deal for the Pac-12 is so important to the whole conference because in 2024, they're going to redo this deal. They're now at a huge disadvantage. They're not playing football right now where everybody else is trying to play football. And so how are they going to close that gap? Because it's growing. They're going to be 20 to $25 million behind per university. So how do you keep pace? It's almost like it's the Power Four now and then the Pac-12. That's uh, I had never looked at it in, in those terms as far as, you know, the, the three standouts in the Pac-12 as far as resources and opportunities, UW, Oregon, and, and USC for the reasons you mentioned. But it does make a lot of sense when you take a step back and you think about it in those terms. Um, you know, you've had a chance to cover a lot of different sporting events over the course of your career. Um, you know, obviously you, you're a Northwest guy, so you've covered University of Oregon in the Final Four uh, a few years back when Gonzaga was there. Um but you've also covered five Olympics from, from what I saw. That, to me, is something that I look at it and be like, I, I would be overwhelmed if, if I have a media credential and a media <laughs> path, and I'm not specifically tailored to one sport. Somebody like yourself goes in, you have a media path, you're trying to find a story, you're trying to find an event or an angle to cover. Is there an event or a competition when, when you look at that in, in Olympic games and say, you know what, I want to go in this direction, or I want to see that athlete. H- how do you come up with a story at such a large and in- world-encompassing event? That is a great question, and and, and look, uh, I've covered five of them. It, Adrian Wojnarowski, who everybody now knows uh, you know, from the NBA world, was the sports columnist at the Fresno Bee before I was. So when I walked in the door, Andy Katz was the beat reporter who was covering Jerry Tarkanian. Woj was the columnist. I took Woj's job. Woj went on to, you know, go to the East Coast and then eventually ended up on ESPN breaking draft day news and everything else. But Woj told me when I came in, I I was getting ready to go to the Sydney Olympics in 2000, and he said, it's going to take you an Olympics to figure out how to cover an Olympics. I had no idea what he meant. I went in there, and you're right. You, You wake up every day. You're in a foreign country. You're staring at a board of events from ping pong to synchronized swimming to rhythmic gymnastics to wrestling to track and field, and you're trying to figure out, it's overwhelming. What do I cover today? How do I end up in the right place? And I ended up that first Olympics in a lot of the wrong places, and I would go and show up, and I and the story was happening somewhere else. And I can remember distinctly, um, you know, in 2004, I'm in Athens. I had figured it out by then. But one of the things you have to do is you have to monitor what's going on. So I'm at swimming in 2004, and all of a sudden I look up, and Puerto Rico is beating the United States in basketball. And so I jump on the shuttle. I get to the Puerto Rico-USA basketball game at halftime, and I'm there for the second half as Puerto Rico upsets the United States. It's the story everybody was talking about. It changed the Olympic dream team model. The next year, you know, we came back with a vengeance, and the United States was not going to be denied. And since uh, we haven't, but— it was getting in the right place at the right time. But you, when you cover an Olympics, you literally are walking into this landmark moment in someone's life. They've trained their whole life for it. You're there. It's emotionally exhausting. It's 21 days of that over and over and over again. 
And if you have a chance to go see an Olympics, I don't care if you're going to see ping pong or handball or whatever it is, go see it. It is the most amazing thing. And you figure it out. I remember uh, Mario Zunigas from uh, Beaverton was fencing for a gold medal. And my editor calls me and says, get to fencing. We got a kid from Beaverton who's about to fence for the gold medal. So I hustle to fencing and I burst through the doors. And on the way there, I'm going, I don't know anything about fencing. And so I walk through and I sit down and find my uh, press seat. And the guy next to me is uh, French. And I said to him, how do they score a point? Like, you know, teach me, <laughs> teach me what they're trying to do here. And really what you learn is like early in my newspaper career, I was one of the papers I worked at was the Santa Cruz Sentinel. And for anybody who's ever been to Santa Cruz knows you see Santa Cruz, banana slugs, counterculture. They were not mainstream sports. But I'll tell you what I got out of that. I was covering girls water polo. I was covering uh, soccer played on the beach. I was, play, I was covering surfing. You learn how to tell stories about things you don't know about. And you focus on people. And so, you know, I really, in Olympics, you really need to focus on the human element, the people, the two wrestlers from Russia and the United States that are wrestling for a gold medal. Um, you know, what do they have in common? Go figure that out. And, you know, here are these, it's, it's a cold war that's going on and for the rest of us, but here are these two wrestlers who are wrestling for a, a gold medal. And it's just, a, it's exhilarating. And a Summer Olympics, there is nothing better. There's nothing more important and better in the, in the sports landscape to go go see in person. So if you have a chance to get a ticket to go see any of that, Dan, take your kids. Let them see somebody achieving their dream in, you know, in a, in a ping pong venue. It's, it's amazing. Well, I can only imagine, like you said, it's overwhelming to figure out, you know, how to cover it. Um, I would love to compete in the Olympics in ping pong. That's one of my uh, kind of passions. I've got a ping pong table out in my barn. I love to get some buddies over there and, uh, you know, play some ping pong. Um, but I actually, I have a daughter who uh, is 12 years old, and she has a, a goal and a dream to represent the U.S in the winter Olympics for figure skating and she's made it to the national level. I see on an individual sport, the amount of time and passion and dedication it takes, you know, just to get progressed to the level of, of competing at the national event. I can only imagine the pride as a parent uh, would be intensified at the world level. So, you know what, yeah. John, if by chance my daughter uh, does, continue to improve and ever get that opportunity, I will definitely make sure that you know about it. And, and who knows, maybe you'll be writing a story on her someday. Yeah, You know what, you hit on something there that I think is important and I think we could all, we can all learn from. And I don't know if you went through this as an athlete, as a pro athlete, but I, I covered a lot of the trials, the Olympic trials, where you get athletes who are just close to the Olympics, but maybe don't make it. Or maybe they just, maybe they make the Olympics, but they're not really thinking about meddling. What I noticed in covering the trials and then covering the Olympics was the athletes, even if they're maybe they were on the fringe of making the Olympic team, the athletes who were willing to say out loud as a goal, I'm going to make the Olympic team. Not I want to make the Olympic team, but I'm going to make the Olympic team in the trials or I'm going to win a medal in Athens or Beijing or London or you know Sydney. The athletes who were willing to say it out loud tended to be the athletes who got there. And I, and I thought it was interesting because I would look at their qualifying times and go, they're all, they're all even. But why are these four or five really rising above? And, and maybe it was just symptomatic, but the ones that I heard in the news conferences declare, like, for the world to hear it, I'm going to make the Olympic team, were the ones that made the Olympic team. And I, I don't think it was accidental. And I asked Ashton Eaton later 
about this in you know in a private conversation i said to him you know when you're competing are you looking over at the other people are you looking at the times are you looking you know in the decathlon what did so and so do in the javelin he said he never thinks about anything but succeeding and he never thinks about the competition he's totally focused on his own performance and how successful he's going to be he never entertained the idea of failing and i think most of us walk around on a daily basis struggling with our own limitations and thinking about failing not being willing to say out loud i'm going to be successful and because that's a scary thing for some people it is self-talk and the belief in themselves can can help somebody uh achieve something that is monumental and that's true in sports as you mentioned it's true in in business and you know that kind of self-esteem right now is something that a lot of people in this world with the the coronavirus and the pandemic and and having uh businesses shut down for a certain amount of time has been and schools closed has been really difficult for a lot of people so i love the way you phrase that self-talk i think that's very important I know you've got to get going uh, with your day and prepare for your own radio show uh, later, John, but I do want uh, to leave you with a couple last quick questions. Um, What is the greatest event that you've ever covered? I know we've talked about the Olympics, but is there a specific game, whether it's at the Olympics or another Final Four or Super Bowl, what's the greatest event you've ever covered? Well, I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I was there in the NCAA tournament when you were making your breakthrough. I mean, it was it was neat to see you play, and it's fun to talk to you all these years later because you played with a lot of joy and you played with passion. And I think there were a lot of kids who looked at Dan Dickow and said, Dan Dickow can play at this level, I can play at this level. You know, and, and I think that's such an important, inspiring thing. And same thing, you know, I, I watched, you know, Usain Bolt run the 100 in, in Beijing and in, and in London. And it's like a heavyweight prize fight. And it's 10 seconds long, this whole race, with a lot of buildup. But seeing somebody like that perform and do something that no one else in the world can do was amazing. Galen Rupp in the 5,000 in London, uh, you know, an American male distance runner had not medaled in like 40 years. And nobody saw him coming. And here was this moment where Mo Farah was in the lead and, you know, the, he runs for the U.K. and the fans in London were going nuts. But I was watching Galen Rupp run and I, I had glassy eyes. And it wasn't because I have this fondness for Galen Rupp or his story, which is a great story. It was more about pride in America, pride in watching an American male do something that nobody thought an American would do in that Olympics. And to me, it's those performances, and they happen all the time. We look around, they happen all the time. They happen in the NBA playoffs. They happen in Major League Baseball. It's just athletes who will rise above a moment and just seize the stage. And that, to me, is like, you know, it, it gives you goosebumps. And how about the, the greatest interview that you've ever had? I, I know you've come across, um, you know, very influential people in the world of sports as well as some of the greatest athletes. I had President Obama on my radio show, and I was really nervous because I was like, this guy's leader of the free world. And I, I, I had planned all these questions, and my wife said, what are you going to talk to him about? And I said, I don't – you know, I'm torn because, you know, he was coming to Portland, and he was only going to do one interview, and they decided that he would do my show. And so I felt like I had to ask him all these political questions, and she said, that's not what he wants to talk about. Talk sports with him. And – 
I got a chance to talk sports with him and talk to him about throwing out the first pitch at a White Sox game and, you know, him growing up as a big basketball fan. Oh. And and I could really feel him relax in the interview when he realized this wasn't going to be about health care or this wasn't going to be about foreign policy. <laughs> it was this was going to be, you know, let's let's talk about, you know, and he started talking about his daughters and youth sports. And he was just like any other dad who's got daughters who play sports. And that was really cool. And another interview that stands out. Uh, Chris Herron, a guy you're familiar with. I had covered him in college when he played for Jerry Tarkanian and then obviously went to the NBA and he had problems with substance abuse. I had him back on my show a few years ago, and he started the interview by apologizing for being such a jerk over the years because he was. He was difficult to deal with. And But his willingness to talk about the mistakes he had made in life, his addiction, opiates, and really the changes he was trying to help other people with i thought that it was powerful it's powerful stuff like that it's it's you know those moments where you realize you're getting a real interview with somebody who's really willing to be authentic and vulnerable with, that are powerful those are a couple great examples of events as well as people that you've interviewed john i really appreciate your time i know you've got a lot going down in the portland area as far as your radio show your journalism journalist work at the oregonian I always appreciate getting the chance to connect, um, and I appreciate the feedback and the and the uh, help that you've given me on the media side as I've grown my career. So, John, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining the ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.